0: Waldy
1: and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I'm Valdemar Unusjak, art critic of the Sunday Times, but at school they called me Waldy, and as this podcast has high educational ambitions, you too can call me Waldy. I'm joined by a man who's been described as the Tam O'Shanter of art history. Yes, he likes a drink. Yes, he lives in Scotland. And yes, every time he opens his mouth, all we hear is poetry. He is, of course, Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor, art historian, art dealer, art legend. Bendy, so how are things up there in the Highlands? Uh, uh,
0: Top form, thank you, Wilde. And uh, art legend, I'll go with that. Former art dealer, I should say. But as I always have to remind you, I'm the mere ground layer to your oil paint, Wilde. I am the gypsum to your vermilion.
1: Oh, I see. So you're just the stuff that gets covered up, Bendy, by me. Is that right? Indeed. (laughs) Well, that's not true, is it? As we're about to find out. Um, Particularly because... Now, as you know, Bendy, um, one of the most marvellous things about Scotland is that there are lots of golf courses up there. And some of those golf courses are owned by a certain Donald John Trump, who's been (laughs) in the news a lot recently, as you know, So we thought we'd make this podcast an American art special, which it sort of is, and also by a remarkable coincidence, the kind of coincidence that only the gods of art can arrange. 2020 happens to be the 435th anniversary of the arrival in America of John White. And if that isn't a dodgy anniversary, then nothing is. Now, we're going to find out about John White in a moment. And I should just tell you quickly that there's a special podcast page at zczfilms.com with all the pictures that Bendy and I talk about. So just go to zczfilms.com and it's all there. But yes, John White. What do you know about him, Bendy?
0: Uh, very little, in
1: fact. Was he important? He was very important because he was basically the first Western artist uh, to arrive in America. Certainly, the one we, the first we know about. So mm-hmm. he turned up in in 1585 at the island of Roanoke. You may have heard mm-hmm. of Roanoke. It was uh, the first attempted colony in America.
0: Yes, I've been. Um, there.
1: And then afterwards, there was a sort of infamous situation, so- so-called lost colony, where all the colonists disappeared. But John White, in fact, was was a Governor of Roanoke, even at one point, but he turned up, he was sent there by Walter Raleigh, and the thing about him was that he was you know, a colonist, a gentleman, but he was also an artist, and he has left behind an amazing sequence of over two hundred watercolours, which are the first, and indeed pretty much the only images we have of America in the sixteenth century, so. So we see a lot of Native Americans here. And that's what makes this such an interesting and, and unique contribution. So there are watercolours of, of how they lived, of what the people did, and some beautiful ones of animals and fauna and flora from the area, you know, botanical drawings. I and mean, this, is, this is 1585, you know. I mean, this is Elizabethan era in England. And they're just so ahead of their time and amazing. And I, um, So I just wanted to start off with him because he's, he's underexplored, I think, and certainly under-celebrated.
0: Yes, and I've had a look at some of White's pictures, and um, I mean, they're not technically brilliant, but they do have that, that fascinating moment I love in art history when uh, someone from one part of the world arrives in another and has some artistic gift and, and is able to explore all the things they've never seen before. You can feel their eyes popping out on stalks, can't you, as they try and record these amazing uh, dances and animals and plants they've never seen. Um, it's it's a fascinating uh, moment in art history and we're, we're so lucky that these have survived goodness
1: but they're in the British Museum and um, I've never seen them actually because they never take them out they're so fragile you know watercolors are, are mm. very difficult at best of times so I've never seen them but they must have been known about you know a, a bit at the time because there's certain sort of images that, that get picked up and used um, and of course what what we mustn't forget is that for a lot of people America or, or rather the new world was thought to be kind of paradise It was the rediscovery of paradise. So everybody who arrived there had this sort of heightened sense, uh, religious underpinning. That's why the Americans think of themselves as the chosen people. There's this sense that they discovered paradise. And so the art there is inflected or infused with this sense of a kind of extraordinarily other reality. There's a famous John White watercolor of Algonquin Indians um, dancing in a circle um, Mm. around some figures in the middle, and I've read suggestions that um, you know the central scene of, of the Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch, mm. where um, we see a kind of a, a sort of paradise going wrong in the middle, and there is this big circle of figures. Running around being decadent i 've I've read suggestions that that image may have been inspired by early accounts of how the Native Americans in America um, behaved and did and what their ceremonies were about so this isn 't just art, this is a kind of clash of religious systems of beliefs, and that big divide that huge divide between the Western viewpoint and the Native American viewpoint I think infiltrates american art and always kind of annoys it and and pushes it about and makes it different
0: yes i mean it's it's interesting to try and work out at what point uh, american art actually begins because it it seems to hover for so long somewhere in the middle of the atlantic doesn't it and that's one of the things i've always found very interesting about uh, american art or rather should we say art produced in america is that um for a nation born in a moment of of revolution and and some violence, you know that that was a that was a, a moment of sort of creative blank canvas in a way, wasn't it? Uh, but it took so long for what we might call an authentic modern American vision to come through in American art. And for the first, I don't know, first hundred years, probably is this is that too much of an exaggeration to say that for the first century, American art really tries quite hard to be British in a way, or certainly uh, European, doesn't it? I mean the early sort of what we might call the founding fathers of of american art people like gilbert Stuart and copley and west benjamin west they spend a lot of their time being in england don't they and trying to paint like english artists trying to paint like joshua reynolds or sir thomas lawrence and they take that style back to them and then that infuses um what americans perceive as good taste you get people like henry clay frick trying to equip their modern palaces like the dining room of a, of a duke in england so they they buy all these Gainsboroughs and, uh, and reynolds portraits and, and they even go for names we don't consider to be tremendously important nowadays like james northcote they idolize these british 18th century portrait artists uh, and then suddenly the, the really exciting moment is when it was when it all changes in the, in the early 20th century when you you do i think get that that authentic american voice people like uh, george bellows who are, are so fantastically exciting
1: Yes, I mean, and of course, a lot of the early American artists were Europeans, you know, someone like Thomas Moran, who's the great sort of the turner of, of, of American landscape, painted these enormous views of the Grand Canyon, amazing pictures. And um, they're forged by my pal, um, Sean Greenhouse, he used to do a good line in, uh, in Thomas Moran's, um, sold a couple to Bolton Museum as, as a tribute to, to Moran's, you know, birthplace in Bolton. But um, uh, the, the Thomas Moran or, or, you know, some of the Hudson River School, um, these were artists who came over from Europe and brought with them their aesthetic, isn't it? And the, yeah. the, the posh people in America, that's what they wanted, isn't it? They yeah. wanted to feel connected to Europe, and it's yeah. still a big ambition of theirs. And, of course, just to go back to the Native Americans who are there all the time, remember, yeah. and who are also making art all the time, remember, but it's a kind of art that was never recognized as art. I mean, in fact, I, I read somewhere that the Native Americans didn't even have a word for art. You know, they made beautiful things like totem poles or these amazing baskets that they made. They're these Californian basket tribes and They used to make baskets that were so finely woven that they could carry water in them without the water dripping. You know, I mean, just amazing wow. technical resources. But those sorts of skills were appreciated by that Native American society but they were very different from the kinds of artistic skills that the posh people you know on the east coast liked. So there was a sense in which Native American art was basically forgotten for two, three, four hundred years nearly wasn't it Um, until uh, much later in, in the 20th century when people began to look at it again and and it suddenly began to have quite a powerful impact. So it is it is this interesting dichotomy all the time this kind of battle between what's there and which is ignored and this imported European taste. And, you know, if I had to sum up American art, I I, I would say that it's a sort of search for something American, Mm. which took an awfully long time to happen because all the time at the beginning, they were were led astray.
0: Which is not unusual, isn't it? I mean, if we look at the story of British art, it takes, if we say our, our story of early modern British art starting in about 1500 as year dot, I know that's a terrible simplification, but let's take that as a starting point. It still takes two centuries for an authentically british school of art to emerge doesn't it um Mm. as opposed to art that's made in britain by foreign artists like van dyke and holbein who come over from the continent so in the in the long scheme of art history that's not unusual in fact do you think you could possibly look at american art history and say that only now we're beginning to get that authentic american vision of american art which includes the full extent of american voices and experience in terms of their uh, political and cultural history i mean i find it so interesting that what we consider to be the big names of american art for say the, the 60s 70s and 80s it's all the it's all the old white dudes isn't it um, and <laughs> and that's beginning to change a bit now and perhaps now we we're only beginning to see a, a sort of emerging of the full spectrum of american experience in visual art well that's not
1: certainly true and we can actually, yeah we can go on to that i just want to hold, hold you back a minute then however so when do you think was the first um genuinely american art made what what what, what period what what do you think could be called a real and authentic and individual american art
0: well we have to define what we mean by american but if we mean authentically american art that reflects modern the spirit
1: america, of america that couldn't have happened anywhere
0: else let me put it that yes. way art that could yes. not have happened anywhere else um, difficult question but i i would go to artists a little bit like people like winslow homer and norman rockwell who i really like and i i know it's a bit like saying you like beryl cook in england but artists who are formed from the american experience that so winslow homer for example is is formed out of, of graphic art and and making illustrations for newspapers and magazines about the american civil war so that's an authentic that's a, a moment of american experience isn't it and Norman Rockwell, well, he's formed out of he covers everything from the 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 birth of the motor car to man standing on the moon, and he captures and draws and paints it all for public consumption. So he's formed by the American experience. So I, w- I would look at people like that. Am mm. I hopelessly wrong?
1: Well, I don't know if you're wrong. No, no. I mean, you're never wrong, Bendy. Um, <laughs> I think I think it is abstract expressionism. I think I think oh. that was, for all Adorable. its male macho ness, etc., it was the first kind of art that was uniquely American, could not have been made anywhere else. You know, the size of it, the bombast of it, even the machismo, you know. But also, I mean, you know, we know that Pollock was, Jackson Pollock was massively influenced by the sand art of the Navajo. The Navajo Used to make pictures by, by by dropping sand onto onto the ground in coloured patches, and he used to watch that when he was working with his father in the desert. And we know that you know Barnett Newman was influenced by by Navajo rugs in the stripes and things. In my innocence, I like to think that that abstract expressionism at its best managed to marry abstract traditions from Europe with this Native American thing, which was completely different. It made art have a sort of potency, a sort of magical sense. Um, it made it big in ways that I mean, you couldn't make some of those pictures in Europe, could you? You couldn't paint a Jackson Pollock in Paris, there isn't the room. Um, and, and, and and once that happened, you know, you've got a few American movements that were sort of gloriously of America. Land art, for example, in the 60s mm. and 70s. I mean, you can't mm. make land art in, in Britain. Mm. You know, you've got great artists here like Andy Goldsworthy who make little things in streams, but you can't have like, like Roden Crater, you know, there's a James Turrell piece where he's reshaping an entire volcano in the painting. desert. I mean, no one's going to do that here. There was that sense of American art finding itself, um, I think, with abstract expressionism. But but you're absolutely right. The downside of that is that it was macho and and it needed... It it represented a a pretty sort of specific area of American society and needed to be overthrown. And that's certainly happening now.
0: Yes. And then I agree with you. I do like abstract expressionism. Um, I have to persuade myself to like it because I'm such a reactionary stick in the mud. I mean... There's only so many Rothkos I can look at. Um, and I was watching your, your series on the BBC at the moment. Well, we That's should right. mention that. Lovely, American Yes, yeah, it's, it's on
1: iPlayer. Yes, it, yes. it's um, Big Skies, Big Dreams, Big Art. Yeah, it's all yeah. about uh, the history of American art. And it's got Thomas Moran in it and all those people.
0: But I was looking no. at your piece in the uh, the Rothko Chapel. Um, and I, I'm talking from a position of great ignorance because I've never been there. But it did strike me that it just looks like the decorators have left early. Oh, I'm not sure I could get the same kind of spiritual zing that you obviously got from it. Perhaps that was the lighting in your TV that. show.
1: Oh, I can't believe you said <laughs> that. Look, look, you have to give yourself to art. It's all about the communion between the artwork and you. And you, you know you've got to be ready for that. You've got to give yourself to it. If you give yourself to it, it's 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 a glorious experience. Now you just gotta trust me on that. Come on. Okay. So um,
0: well let's let's I'll trust you on abstract expression. How about this for my for my next gross generalization? Uh, probably designed to wind you up. Um, that is the high point of of the immediate uh, period of modern American art that we're discussing. And then sort of early 1970s, late 1960s, it all starts to go horribly wrong when the money takes over and you get this terrible commodification of art that allows it, it's purposely designed to be as traded as easily as a stock and a share on Wall Street, isn't it? So all these, these endless uh, Warhol series of screen prints um, that are designed to be sold in multiple editions. Uh, and pop art and Roy Lichtenstein. do you would you agree with me that that's where it starts to to get um increasingly absurd and banal?
1: Um, um, yes, I, I think that it, I agree with you about the commercialization and the you know the art of the deal um became imposed on on the art world, and the prices went ridiculously high, and we're seeing the results of that even now. But um, there were still good things being done in America. I'm a great fan of minimalism. See, I love Karl Andre. I love Donald Mm -hmm. Judd, Sol LeWitt. Minimalism stood in opposition to all that. It stood in opposition to pop art. It was about a sort of a search for kind of underlying simple truths in the American landscape. And again, it was inspired by uh, uh, by America in ways that were exciting and specific. So I think there were good things being done. Um, Of course, it it all got very corrupt. And, um, you you know, as as an ex-art dealer, you know full (laughs) well what America brought to the mercantile situation. Um, in art. I mean, it ruins so much. And that's also why it's good at the moment, because um, art, American art, has opened out. We've got a lot of African-American artists doing really exciting things, you know. You know, my hero, N'Judeca, Akunili Crosby, Mm -hmm. um, and Deborah Roberts. I love all that. And we've got women coming through in huge numbers. And you you think of the importance of someone like Cindy Sherman. You know, uh, these are are massively important figures in art. So I think... Yes, I mean, American art at the moment is, is really exciting because yes. it's got all this new blood coming in from areas that have previously not been represented.
0: No arguments and although, there. And although it's terrible for the people having to live through it, uh, nothing fires the creative imagination of a nation than a bit of political conflict. And we've certainly got that at the moment, haven't we? Oh, I haven't noticed. Where's that then? <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps we might be on the verge of a new golden era of American art. I think it's a very exciting moment.
1: Yes, well, I think with that, yes, yes, I think there's been a sort of golden era recently. Um, anyway, listen, this is a completely hopeless conversation. <laughs> you and I trying to encapsulate American I in 10 minutes on a podcast. What a
0: stupid idea. Was this your idea? Or- it was my idea, but we like to think big and it's an American moment <laughs> and we should do something for our one American listener. If he's still there, or she's still there. Hello. Hello, uh, listener
1: in Ohio. Um, You'll be pleased to hear that we are just finishing this ridiculous (laughs) conversation. Uh, The impossible task of summing up American art in just 10 minutes. Of course, we failed. Uh, How could we not have failed? Um, So I think we need to move on sharpish bendy uh, to the next chapter of this podcast uh, because American art isn't the only big subject in the news this week. There's also been much talk of statues, especially bad ones. And that's why, yes. The Waldie and Bendy Awards are back. And this time, we're looking for Britain's worst statue. The Waldie and Bendy Awards Yes, the gods of art have answered everybody's prayers. The Waldie and Bendy Awards are back. Um, And we're back because this week, as everybody will know, there's been a bit of a controversy, hasn't there, um, about a Maggie Hambling sculpture. It's uh, a statue devoted to Mary Wollstonecraft, the great pioneer of English feminism, that's gone up in Newington Green in London. I think it's fair to say, Bendy, that it hasn't been welcomed with open arms.
0: No, it's been a fair amount of criticism, um, and I've sort of been tempted to join in, but I haven't seen it, so I have to uh, be cautious. And then we always have to remember, don't we, that in art history, uh, the thing that tends to have been uh, heralded as a terrible um, disaster and a matter of controversy usually ends up being, having the last laugh and being a, a universally adored artwork, doesn't it? So it. perhaps we should give this one a little bit more time.
1: <laughs> I must have missed all those occasions I'm not saying it never happened but not often um, Look I haven't seen it either I have seen lots of photographs of it and I've seen it on the news um, and I've, I I know Maggie Hambling's work from, 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 from earlier days I mean what people seem to be moaning about is the fact that it has nothing to do with Mary Wollstonecraft um, that there's a kind of feminine mass of some kind representing the female spirit and that's emerging from the grass and on top is this Rather weird nude woman who looks a bit like a superhero. She's got that androidy lack of detail about her, except in her lady garden, which is luxurious and unmissable. And so the, the complaints have been that, that this is absolutely nothing to do with Mary Wollstonecraft, nothing to do with feminism, it's nothing to do with anything really. So I, I get that, you know, and it's not me that's complaining, it's, it's writers and feminist writers who've been looking at it.
0: Yes. I mean, I did sort of, there was, there's even a headline in The Guardian of a, of a piece entitled, why I hate the new Mary Wollstonecraft statue and I just thought it was a bit unnecessary I mean that's very strong isn't it to really hate something that's been done with with love and care and it has some merit I think I mean I like the bottom I should say the base I mean the, the, the bottom part of it this has a sort of certain Rodin elegance you're right the thing on top is a little bit curious I think it needs time to bed in this artwork and maybe it'll become more loved I don't know it's already started to be vandalized by people putting little knitwear clothes on it, so that probably doesn't bode very well it's
1: a trouble with public sculpture isn't it it's, it is asking for it everybody will sort of pop up and, and say their little bit about it but let's put that aside for a moment because um we're, th-
0: well just before we move on I was I mean it's it's not of Mary Wollstonecraft it's for Mary Wollstonecraft and if we're to see this sculpture as something to get people talking about Mary Wilson Graff, well they certainly succeeded, hasn't it? But I suppose the ultimate test is would we or would we like to be commemorated in that manner? If someone was going to put up a statue to, to you in 100 years time, which I'm sure they will, Wilde, um, and there you are uh, climbing on top of a mound of broken canvases and frames and bits of sculpture, standing there in all your glory, um, w- would, you, would you be happy with that or not? Would, would I be nude? Entirely nude, all your glory. I mean, it, anatomically correct, everything about you perfect.
1: Look, you can't do that to the world. I mean, there'll <laughs> be people lining up saying, oh, the new Hercules, you know, and all that. You know, there'll be envy flooding, <laughs> flooding through the nation. No, 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 no none of that. Um, well, we, look, look we need to move on to the real topic here which is I think public sculpture is always controversial in my estimation it's, it's so often really bad it's a very curious thing so uh, of course the Waldie and Bendy Awards are back and what we're going to be doing here uh, this is your idea again Bendy um, is deciding on the five worst bits of public statuary in Britain and I think this is a really good point to go to zczfilms.com and look at the pictures we're talking about because you can really see the, the horrors that are
0: out there So, uh, Bendy, take us away. What what are we going to be doing here? Well, we've got a short list of five. The rules are they have to be extant, that is, standing now for people to go and admire or not admire. Uh, They have to be in Britain. And you and I and Taya have totted up some scores. And here they are in ascending order of badness. At number five is the memorial to the comedian Ernie Wise in Morley near Leeds, which is by Melanie Wilkes. And this is a, an artwork that's carved, I think, in sandstone. Um, he, he looks like he's toppled over, he's holding an umbrella. Um, and I think that the best thing you could say about it is that it might win a sandcastle competition on the beach <laughs> somewhere. But other than that, <laughs> it's struggling to convince.
1: Yes, but I, I agree with you about the least worst aspect. Um, amongst the sins it, it doesn't commit is it's not very expensive, I mean, apparently it only costs something like eight or £10,000, which is peanuts compared to some of the other stuff that's coming up in this list. Uh, And, you know, a comedian, Ernie Wise, looks a bit like Barney Rubble out of the Flintstones. He's sort of falling over. He's crudely hacked out of sandstone. There's an artistic modesty, I think, to the sculptor's ambition here, which strikes a chord with me. You know, Ernie Wise was the straight man to Eric Morecambe, and this is... This is a kind of loser sculpture. I, I I rather like it. I'm I'm fond of it in the way that you know you get you might be fond of orphans or, or stray cats <laughs> or something. There's a plaintiveness to it.
0: I think you raise a very important point about the budget. And I have to say I have looked at some of the artist's uh, other more abstract works online, and they're they're perfectly acceptable. So um, I'm not meaning to be too unkind. There may have been other limitations here that that explain why the umbrella he's holding looks a bit like. Um, uh, a candy cane, um, but poor old Ernie. Inevitably, um, there is a statue not far away of Eric Morecambe which completely overshadows this. So that's 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 Ernie's destiny, really, isn't it? Shall we move on? Okay. In fourth place, uh, we have um, something called the Meeting Place, which is in St Pancras Station. Anyone who's arrived at St Pancras by Eurostar cannot have failed to have missed it. It's a huge uh, bronze. Uh, two figures embracing uh, having a kiss i think and it's by an artist called paul day this was made in 2007 and has this ever struck you as something fitting to welcome you to london
1: uh, yeah i wish i could have struck it with something mm-hmm. big um <laughs> I, I think this is ghastly i would have had it f- much higher up the list in other words i think it's much worse than than the fourth worst it's a piece of magazine illustration isn't it this twee idea of i think that's the artist himself and his and his French wife he was chosen because he he has a French wife who lives in France so there is a symbolism of the artist being uh, someone who who joins France to England just as St Pancras railway station does um but it's 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 that awful illustrative type of sculpture, which I think is probably the worst kind there is. I, I would rather someone made a grotesque mistake in, in a search for exaggeration or symbolism or, or big expression rather than make this timid thing, which honestly, it is a sculptural equivalent of the cover of a Mills and Boone book. You know, and and it lacks any sense of of genuine invention. And it's whatever it is, nine meters tall. Gigantic great thing. Uh, But the only good thing about it was I remember reading a few years ago that originally the sculptor, um, there's a frieze around the bottom. So you've got this kissing couple and she's all very French and lifts her leg up, you know coily. Around the bottom, there's a frieze representing the history of the railways, and apparently at one point, um, he had a scene in there of somebody uh, falling under a train on the underground and being killed, uh, and London Transport stepped in and asked him to remove it. You see, now that, if that had been there, there would have been a, a nugget of reality to all this, but uh, no, I, I think it's ghastly, and I would have
0: had it uh, uh, higher up in the bad list than fourth. It's the wrong place, it's the wrong scale, it's the wrong colour, it's the wrong everything, and um imagine uh, coming from Paris where you might have just seen Rodin's The Kiss and uh, oh. this is this is the British equivalent. I mean it says so yeah. much about. Uh, Do you know how much uh, it cost, Bendy? No, I tried to think. It cost a million quid. you oh, you joking? No, a, a million, million quid.
1: quid. That was the budget for it. a million oh, quid.
0: Travesty. And they don't, they look like lizards. Have I mean, you no, there's something yeah. very peculiar about their face? It's a sort of it's a manifestation of a David Icke conspiracy theory. i find it very unsettling
1: Mm. we just started the list buddy we've got tragedies come keep going
0: (laughs) well in third place we have the statue of uh sir bobby robson which is by an artist called tom mailey i hope i've pronounced that right and it's outside uh newcastle united football ground uh in newcastle and um we've we've put this in here because uh, there are so many examples of terrible footballing statues in the country, aren't there? Every football ground in the nation seems to have to have one at least terrible bronze statues of someone from the glory days of the club in the past. Um this statue of, of Robson really is woeful.
1: It is. It is I mean he's got his hands in his pockets, right? So he sort of looks like he's fiddling with himself, but he can't <laughs> quite see where his hands are going. And he's standing there. And of course I mean the single worst thing about it, and this is I think a universal truth with football statues the single worst thing about it is it doesn't look like Bobby Robson. No. You know, the face could be anybody. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, it's, it's not as bad as the Ronaldo. I mean, that's the, the perfect bad footballing sculpture. There's a great one of, of Mohammed Salah as well in Egypt. That was bad too. So they're not quite as bad as that. But in a reserved English way, they're of the same territory. You know, they don't look like who they're meant to look like. And what they're expressing is a mystery to me. I mean, Bobby Robson, the poor guy, I mean, he there are several Bobby Robsons. I mean, I go to football quite a bit and there's one outside Ipswich Town as well where he was a manager. Um, And that, I mean, he seems to be sort of falling over drunk with one hand (laughs) in the air and what's he doing, you know? It's a very unfortunate thing, the football sculpture. Yes, they're always bad. And I agree with you totally. I think the Bobby Robson in Newcastle, um, I mean, yes, it must be the sort of apex of the trend.
0: Hmm. And unfortunately, the trend for terrible modern sculptures has left football and infected politics as well. Uh, And in second place, we have the truly, truly woeful statue of Lloyd George in Parliament Square uh, by an artist called Glyn Williams. Uh, This is a monstrous toot of bronze, which has no place standing in the holy of holies of British political sculpture in Parliament Square. Have you seen it in the flesh?
1: I have of course I have yes oh. I, I walk through Parliament Square often and most of the statues there are pretty awful I mean even the Nelson Mandela which you know we want so much to be good isn't in my opinion I mean he looks like some kind of zombie walking forward with his arms outstretched you know and it's it's tragic it's tragic because uh, if anybody deserves a great statue it's Nelson Mandela but um, yes Lloyd George I remember when they put it up it was what 2007 was it uh, Harold Pinto went into print immediately to call it a disgrace didn't he <laughs> Um, and I think this again, Williams is a Welsh sculptor, wasn't, isn't he? So I think that's what got him the gig. Um, you know, Welsh sculptor, uh, sculpt Welsh hero. But I mean, what what's happening to Lloyd George in this picture? I mean, he's prancing about. He's got that kind of slightly barrel-cookish outline, no no detail to him. And what what he lacks in any form at all, what he lacks, I think, mean, is gravitas. I mean, that's <laughs> what you want from a political statue, isn't it? Some okay. sense of gravitas. I mean, this looks like a kid playing on the beach or something, you know, they're, they're springing <laughs> about and jumping. Um, where do they find them? And I happen to know that that one cost something extraordinary as well. I think it was about, about £325,000, you know. Oh, yes. In Parliament Square in front of the Houses of
0: Parliament. Um,
1: it's a junkyard, a bad sculpture, that whole, that whole Parliament Square.
0: But look at his hands. They're terrible sort of p- podgy fingers and this awful billowing cloak coming out behind him like he's just... <laughs> Let off a particularly violent fart. And he's tottering at a, a rather alarming angle. I mean, it looks like something that's been scaled up from the size of a key ring, doesn't it? But it has no um, artistic uh, dexterity in it anywhere, no. as far as I can see.
1: You're right. There is no artistic dexterity. It's a bit like, um, it's not, you know, the, we, we've talked about him before on this podcast, But Botero, is a Colombian <laughs> artist who has a statue in every square. And he does podgy people. But their hands are sort of podgy. They look like balloon people, almost, if they've been blown up out of balloons. And that's where the detail disappears in this kind of podgy all-purposeness. And thats it's got that about it. You <laughs> just, <laughs> just don't <laughs> know anything about Lloyd George when you look at this, do You, you do not you? don't. You learn nothing. You learn nothing. It doesn't look like him. It doesn't represent what he did. It's just him bouncing about like a kid on the beach. Terrible sculpture. I agree
0: with you totally about that. Hopefully it'll be replaced one day because Lloyd George should have a good statue. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the winner of the inaugural Waldie and Bendy Award for Terrible UK Public Sculpture is Maggie Hambling for the statue called An Encounter with Oscar Wilde just outside Trafalgar Square. And it's designed so that you can lie on it and have a conversation with Oscar as he's sitting there having his cigarette. Have you have you tried doing that?
1: Mm, I haven't tried having a conversation with him, but I've seen it enough times. Um, Yes, I'm good. I'm so happy that Maggie Hambling has made it onto this list as well as the other ones that she could have appeared on. I mean, I do think this is the worst possible type of public sculpture. Oscar Wilde, a wit, a brilliant mind, Um, someone who was such a sort of ready presence in English culture, so elegant, so wispy, and here he is looking like some kind of down and out having a bath, you know, with a, an Alf Garnett fag hanging out of his fingers. His face has no resemblance of any kind to Oscar Wilde. And it's all about Maggie Hambling and nothing about him. It's an, it's, it's, it's awful. And he looks at like least he's emerging from a coffin,
0: ones. doesn't he? It's oh, he's, he's a coffin or a bath that he's lying in. But it's the shape of a coffin. It looks like it. <laughs> It well, looks like is a sort terrible reanimated ghost of Oscar Wilde is emerging from the ground of Trafalgar Square. And yeah. I don't know if if you've ever and you haven't tried to line it, but I and I haven't tried to line it, but I've sort of gone up and thought about it. And it, and it tends to be covered in wee wee. This thing, uh, because yeah. it's a sort of convenient um, peeing place for the local inebriates, uh, and it's almost got a terrible smell about it. And it's just you
1: know, oh, it's a
0: disaster from start to finish.
1: It is a disaster. And I mean, that cost a bomb as well. Is it? Yes, I mean, it's, but the, the worst thing about it again is I mean, you look at that face there, the sort of blobby face, which looks as if it's suffering from leprosy, with stuff falling off it, off the skin and the nose, you know, there's no face left there, really. Um, that, that is not Oscar Wilde. It doesn't look like Oscar Wilde. Surely, you know, the basics of sculpture, there has to be some ambition for a resemblance. And I know, again, Maggie Hambling is probably going for a sort of symbolic thing, this conversation with him, as if you really are going to lie down on this tombstone with him and have a chat, you know, while he's puffing cigarette smoke in your face. You know, it's, it's a misconceived, um, badly sculpted, uh, stupidly positioned, far too expensive and a waste of creative energy. I, I, and I totally agree with you about that.
0: It's the worst sculpture in Britain. Well, congratulations of some kind are or in order. And I have to say, I, I do like Megan Hamling's paintings. So I, I'm a fan and I'm, I regret her her winning this inaugural Waldy and Bendy for Terrible Sculpture. But we should, um, we should also remember that neither you nor I could make a sculptor um, if we had a thousand years and a thousand pieces of marble. We couldn't do it. So um, bravo to those who tried at least. God bend to are generous. Um, well, that's enough
1: of the bad news. I think we, we both need cheering up after all that, after the bad sculptures and the bad American art. This is the part of the podcast where we get to choose anything we want from the wonderful world of art to hang in our museum without walls during this period of isolation. So it's the fun bit of the podcast. Mm-hmm. On the wall. Bendor, yes, it's on the wall. Um, Now, I'm sure you're going to come up with something good here, because let's face it, we need a bit of relief from what's come before. What have you chosen to hang on your wall, Bendor?
0: For our American special, I've chosen a painting by Winslow Homer, who I mentioned earlier, uh, a truly American artist, and I think a very great one. This is a painting called A Visit from the Old Mistress, and it belongs to the Smithsonian Museum of American Art in washington dc it was painted in 1876 and it shows um, a group of five figures Uh, four of them are african americans and on the right is a, a white figure she is the old mistress and she used to own the people on the left as slaves but this painting is of course done after the emancipation of the slaves after the american civil war and winslow homer emerged as an American artist uh, by recording uh, the years of the Civil War for in graphic illustrations for magazines like uh, Harper's Magazine. So he was there embedded with the Union troops for four years and he he absolutely saw everything. Um, and about 10 years after the war ended, he, he went back to the South to record the lives of the former slaves and to see how things were changing or rather not changing. Uh, and he did a series of paintings, and this is perhaps the most pointed. and And I think it's, I think it's really fascinating uh, representation of the tension between former slaves and their employers, who used to, in fact, own them. So on the right we have the former mistress, and you can see the hesitancy as she is coming to to speak or perhaps request something of uh, the former slaves, and you can see the former slaves standing at her with with some boldness and confidence that they would never have previously had. And in fact, uh, one of the the figures is seated. And of course, back in the days of slavery, they would have had to have stood up whenever the mistress came to see them. Um, And the year that this was painted is quite important. It was 1876. um, And that was also the year that uh, the so-called reconstruction ended in the southern states and the northern armies withdrew. And of course, um, what what had been a moment of promise for the former slaves uh, rapidly became um, a descent back into the terrors of segregation in the South, which, which lasted for another 75 years at least. So, so Winslow Homer is recording a moment that, that could have gone either way. It could have led to the, the former slaves having um, parity and equality with white people, but unfortunately it didn't. And I think it's a, a fascinating moment in history.
1: Yeah, wonderful picture. Um thank you. I didn't know it actually. And I found it very moving um and indeed very powerful. I didn't know as well that that Winslow Homer had 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 worked as an illustrator. Um it's interesting because there's quite a few American artists that that did that. I mean I'm thinking later on, George Bellows did, of course, um Reginald Marsh. And it's as if the the career of an artist didn't depend just on making great paintings that were on show in museums. You know, if you were a jobbing artist in America, you had to do other things, didn't you? Mm -hmm. You had to make a living. So you had to work as an illustrator. You had to do stuff like that, painting murals, painting things, public murals. And what it gave your art, I think, is a a sort of determination to confront society, to to look at things properly. Because if you have been sent out as an illustrator to illustrate some kind of social issue or problem... You know, that's different from just sort of sitting there and thinking about what what can I paint, which which particular classical myth can I illustrate. And it made American art gritty, didn't it? And, and, and I know this is a rather poetic and beautiful image, but it's also got that sort of gritty undertow. And I, I like it very, very much. Thank you for showing me that.
0: Hmm. Glad you liked it. And I agree with you. There are so many artists from that period, and that's why I mentioned Norman Rockwell earlier, who were able to tell such powerful stories in their pictures because... Uh, that's what they'd done as basically as journalists. And what a moment of American history they lived through from the Civil War to the First World War to the Second World War, so much change. And it's no wonder uh, we have so many wonderful paintings like this.
1: Mm. Indeed, and I've I've leapt forward a bit. Um, I've also, of course, this is our American special, so I'm sticking with America. Um, I've gone for Dorothea Tanning who's probably my favorite female surrealist painter. She was born in in America in 1910 in a place called Galesburg, Illinois, um, a strict sort of Lutheran upbringing. Um, There's a famous quote by her where she says that the only thing that happened in in Galesburg uh, was the wallpaper. (laughs) Um, And this picture here sort of illustrates that. I mean, it's got a, 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 a couple of schoolgirls in torn dresses, and they're attacking the wall, literally attacking the wall, tearing the wallpaper off. And underneath the wallpaper are these ambiguous, organic key shapes. I mean, they look like they could be bits of body. They could be invading trifids. Something dark and invasive is being unveiled. So the idea, I guess, is that underneath this wallpaper, there's this other stuff happening. And... Um, Dorothea Tanning's entire oeuvre really is about this idea that the world is one thing on the surface and another thing underneath that surface and she makes it very personal in these pictures of herself or I always see them as herself, even if they're not specifically meant to be her. This idea of a young schoolgirl or schoolgirls, young girls, growing up in these repressed situations and and, and sort of lashing out. Um, so it's a dark and strange image. And, and to make it all even darker and stranger, lying on the bottom, and you just see the legs of someone who's, I don't know, are they dead? Are they sleeping? Is it another girl? So it's, it's a fraught picture. And it, it's a picture, it's actually called The Children's Games, and it's a so it's a painting about children in a seemingly innocent situation, you know, little girls as it were at play, and yet the play is so dark and mysterious and charged. So that unsettled feeling is what the best surrealist artists had. And I just see it as a a wonderful evocation, really, of of America. It was painted in 1942, but it represents that whole underpinning of, on the surface, you have this very regular and polite society, and underneath there's all this other stuff bubbling through uh so I thought uh, it's a kind of commentary on what's happening in America now isn't it I think um and so that's why I've chosen it also because Dorothea Tanning is so wonderful um and she lived to be 101 isn't that amazing Mm. lived to be 101 what a wonderful artist she was
0: I find this a rather terrifying picture it's um it looks like a scene from The Shining doesn't it um the composition reminded me of Munch's The Scream do you think that's deliberate (laughs) Uh,
1: I don't think so, but I think she would have known about him. And the, the, the timbre of it, the mood of it has got some monk in it, this sense of the world gone crazy. Um and it is terrifying and, and she she did a lot of her art is set in rooms, um, in strange hallways with doors that you open and it's all a bit hitchcocky. You know, you just feel every time you open a door there might be some monster hiding behind. So there is that just that sense of disquiet, a permanent disquiet that nothing's nice. Everything is loaded with potential terror. Um, wonderful artist.
0: Hmm. Well, you wouldn't look at it before you went to bed from your your lockdown gallery, but perhaps it'll get you going in the morning with your first coffee.
1: It will. And it also remind me of, of America, which is what we've been trying to tackle with this chaotic podcast of ours today, Bendy. We set out to do the impossible and we didn't come anywhere near achieving it. <laughs> but that's um, that's life. And that, that's certainly, in, in, a, in a curious way, that does feel sort of the right kind of approach, given what's happening in America at the moment. But that's enough from me. God knows I've babbled. So for me, it's
0: goodbye. And cheerio from me. <laughs> Woldy and <laughs> Bendy.